Reading from uh, Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 15, and Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2, and Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, uh, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was... Um, listening at the tent, the door behind. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advancing years. The way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and he said, Not, not, no, but you did laugh. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did do Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the same time which God had spoken to him. Then Romans chapter 5, chapter 5 verses 1 through 8. Therefore, since we have been uh, justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us in shame. Because God love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, as the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteousness person, though perhaps for a good person one would desire, even do die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the God. Good morning. morning. It's good to be uh, behind this uh, lectern again. Um, I think uh, we've had a lot of newcomers, and so um, I've had uh, some people come up to me and say, you're the worship pastor. And I say, I'm a pastor, and I also do worship, but I'm not the worship pastor. (laughs) Uh, Contrary to um, popular uh, thinking, um, I was actually hired also to preach, and so I get the privilege to preach this morning. So would you please bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, Lord, goodness to us as we, Lord, gather this morning 
as we sing these songs, as we, Lord, hear, Lord, your voice through these scriptures, we can't help but just, again, be in awe of you. Lord, we're reminded, Lord, of your love for us. We're reminded of your grace to us, your mercy. And so, Lord, we pray that as we hear your word now being preached and spoken to us, Father, would you open our hearts, Lord, lift any distractions out of our minds, out of our hearts, Lord, around us. We pray that you would help us to focus on your word, that we as your people would truly heed your word, hear it, and act upon it, that, Lord, we may glorify you through our lives. Do this in us, Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about love, and specifically the love of God. And this is a, a subject, a topic that is often talked about, and so probably not a lot of things that I'm going to discuss with you this morning are going to be new. However, we know that the Word of God is always refreshing to our soul. We know that it is a light unto uh, our path. And so as we listen, uh, maybe some of you, for, for some of you, it will be a reminder of God's love. Maybe for some of you, it will be uh, something new that you learn about God's love. But let us give glory to God as we hear His Word. Now, love is an interesting thing because it's an amalgamation. It's a coming together of so many different things. Things like your actions and your deeds, emotions, words, security, and trust, chemistry, you know, and bonding and all these different things. And so there are many times when love is such a mystery to us, especially if you're married, right? You'll know that uh, for a man, especially on this Father's Day, right, uh, love is a mystery, when it comes to even your wife, no matter how long you've been married. I've, ta I've talked to people, uh, men that have been married for 50 years and men that have been married for five years, and all will say their wives are still a mystery to them. And I think the opposite is also true. Many wives will say, I just don't understand my husband. <laughs> Love is a mystery to us. And it seems like in our culture, unfortunately, that love can be present in one instant and gone the next. We can say that we love our friends and then one wrong word or one wrong deed will turn someone we love into our enemy. Even as we enter into a covenant relationship with our spouse, right? In marriage, unfortunately, it has some, become something that now can be easily broken. So for many people, because of these experiences, because of the way that we understand love in our culture, we form an understanding of love to be something that's fickle, something that can be taken away easily or given easily and then taken back. And therefore, it's something that we need to be cautious about, something we need to be really careful about. And unfortunately, many times, this understanding of love carries over to our understanding of the love of God. Not only our love to God, but God's love to us as well. And so then, knowingly or unknowingly, many times we doubt God's love. Or we put conditions on God's love. Conditions that we make by ourselves. For example, if I've been a good Christian, 
if I've prayed a lot this week and I've read my Bible, then God is near to me. But if I didn't, then suddenly God is far from me. He must not love me as much this week. If I get really emotional, you know, during praise or during worship, or maybe I'm reading the word and tears, you know, roll down my eyes, oh, then that means God loves me a lot and he's near to me. But if I feel no emotion, I'm reading the Bible and it's just dry, I don't feel anything, oh, then God, he must be far away. He must not love me right now. He must be unhappy with me. That's not how God's love works. And unfortunately, we believe these lies sometimes about God because of our understanding, our misunderstanding of love. But it also comes from a lack of understanding what the Bible says about God's love for us. The great thing about Christianity, the great thing about following Christ is that it's not just one thing or another. It's not just about emotions or feelings. It's not just about knowledge either. It's about a relationship with Christ, our, our Savior. And in this relationship with Christ and with God, just like with any other relationship, we continue to build upon that relationship as we get to know right, the, other, the other party. The, the, the great thing about our relationship with God, though, is that the more we get to know God, the more we will fall in love with God. The more we will love him, the, the better things we'll find out about him, right? So I've, we've been at this church for about two and a half years, and maybe at first you think, oh, what a great guy. He's a great pastor. Oh, we love him. And then one year goes by, and two years goes by, and maybe three years go by, and you're like, man, the more I get to know Joshua, he's, he's not that great, you know? <laughs> and the reason why is because we're flawed, right? The more you get to know me, the more you will see my flaws and my failures and my mistakes, my character flaws and all these things. And that's what a human relationship uh, entails, right? But our relationship with God is the exact opposite because God is perfect. And because God is perfect, no matter how much you dig into Scripture, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you praise and worship God, the more you do it, the more you will fall in love with God, the more you will want to be with him and desire him. And so, it is the same with our understanding of God's love. The more we seek to desire to understand God's love for us, the more we will come into this relationship with him in a closer and more meaningful way. Now Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter he tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, to grow in the grace, but not only in the grace, but also the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? He's saying, don't just grow in all these other works and deeds. Don't just grow in these gifts of the Spirit or whatever, you, whatever these things are. He says, grow also in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only Peter, but Paul also constantly, they encourage believers to grow in the knowledge and understanding of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And so, in today's New Testament passage, Paul explains to us what it means that God loves you, that God loves us. In verse 1 of our New Testament passage, passage, Romans chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to talk about a few things that have to do with God's love. And the first thing is justification. Paul here, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what does this mean, justified? Well, the word here that Paul uses is the root word in Greek that is dikaio. And it's an Old Testament concept that speaks of a legal term that is used to describe an acquittal or innocence of someone that was deemed guilty. And literally, it means to make or to declare right or righteous. It means that all of the charges against you have been dropped. It means that your guilty sentence has been removed. It means that your condemnation and your punishment has now been paid for. It means that you are now free. Free from what? Free from sin. Free from guilt. Now, what Paul is saying here in justification, he's saying that our identity has been changed. When once we were guilty, now we are innocent. When once we were enemies of God, when once we were in enmity with God, he says now we are children of God. Now after speaking of justification, Paul further elaborates on our status, our identity with God, when he says that because of justification, we now have peace with God. And he completes this thought in three verses that we didn't read today, but in verses 9 through 11, he says that through our new righteousness, we have been reconciled with God and saved from his wrath. Now we have to think about this for a moment because whenever we talk about reconciliation, oftentimes we talk about God just you know, bringing us back to him. We were once sinners, we were once dead, we were all these things, but he saved us and now we have been drawn back to God. But reconciliation, if you think about it, it involves a two-fold aspect, not just one. On one hand, we are told that we were at enmity with God. We were enemies with God. And so in verse 6, Paul says that we were weak, which means that we did not love God or follow his ways. And then he continues and says that we were ungodly, meaning that we were hostile towards God, trying to find anything else to replace God with. Now, this is our state before we were saved. But what about God? See, on one hand, we were enemies with God, which means that on the other hand, at the same time, God was not simply waiting for us to just come to him. Sometimes I think we have an image of God that he's just a lowly, you know, underappreciated, sad, you know, God who just wants somebody to love him back. And so he's just waiting for us, waiting for us to come to him. But the reality is that God is almighty God. He is the creator God. He is Yahweh. And he demands holiness. And he demands righteousness. And so he's not just waiting for us like, you know, like uh, your grandpa or someone. Oh, I wish they would just call me. I wish they would just come to me. No. He was pouring out his wrath to quench evil and sin to bring justice. 
on one hand, while we were enemies with God and we hated God, God, in his justice and his righteousness, was pouring out his wrath to quench evil. He was pouring out his wrath upon us, we who were his enemies. And this is important to understand when it comes to reconciliation because we need to understand this when Paul says, now we have peace with God. We need to understand that this peace was not initiated by us. It was initiated by God. We didn't decide one day to say, all right, I'm going to stop being God's enemy. All right, God, I'll come back to you. No, 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 no. God said, I will not pour out my wrath upon you. I will not punish you for the sin and the punishment that you deserve. God initiated the peace with us. He initiated the reconciliation with us. He decided to bring us back to him. He gave us peace. Now, if we think about this, if there is an argument or if there's some kind of hostility, let's say between two people or between two countries or two whatever, the only way that it will be resolved or if there's peace is, that, is either if there's a loss, a surrender, or if there's a truce. And this involves either one side to surrender and say, I've lost, or there has to be terms of peace, and then two parties come to a truce and stop fighting. Now, both of these alternatives, they don't completely end a conflict because there can be still roots of hatred or roots of injustice or roots of evil that may rekindle or rise again at any point, and then that conflict starts again. But the peace that we have with God is so much greater and better because God initiated that peace, not us. See, we were completely at fault. We were completely in the wrong. We were completely in sin. Yet God who was innocent, who was right and righteous, he chose not to pour out his wrath upon us. He chose to give us peace. He chose to give his son as a ransom. You see, we could never win this battle with God. Yet God still gave his son to bring this ultimate peace to us. Now, as in any case where there's wrongdoing, there has to be a price that's paid. A price that is paid for innocence. It's not grace, it's not mercy, it's not love if you release a criminal for their crime without any cost. That is injustice, that is unfair, that is wrong, and that is corrupt. Even with our children, even when it's a minor injustice or a minor wrong, that's for example with our children, when they do something wrong, oftentimes it's easy and simple for us to just say, all right, that's okay, don't worry about it, forget about it. Without any explanation, without any forgiveness, without any understanding of a cost. And when we do this, we teach them that forgiveness and grace and mercy is cheap. We are giving them a love that is easy and cheap. 
They don't need accountability. They learn that I could just get away with anything, really, in the name of love, right? Oh, don't you love me? All right, then just let me go. They become entitled, and their worldview of love is distorted. Even in a minor wrong, we teach our children why they were wrong and what it cost. Even if it's minor, if my son disobeys me or does something wrong or breaks something or whatever he does, instead of me just saying, all right, whatever, that's okay. We can just buy another one. Don't worry about it. No, here's what you did wrong. And even though you're forgiven, here's what it cost. It cost me money or it cost me emotional, right? Like it made me sad or made me disappointed or whatever the cost was, they need to know this was the cost for your forgiveness. In the same way, when God acquitted us of our guilt, when he forgave us a multitude of sins, it cost him something. He could, if you think about it, he could have just said, everyone's forgiven. It costs nothing. Right? But that's not how justice works. That's not how righteousness works. There's a cost. And the cost was his own son. The blood and death of his own son, Jesus Christ. In verse 8, we read that God shows his love for us. Not simply by letting our sins go unpunished. Not just by saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. But he removed our sins by paying the cost himself through the death of his own son. So then, those who question or doubt God's love, who say maybe, uh, oh, well, God didn't give me what I prayed for don't realize that he's already given you all of himself. They say, well, uh, God really doesn't love me. If God really loved me, then I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in right now. Not realizing that he has changed your entire situation from death to life. Right? Whatever we can come up with to say, God doesn't really love me. He has already given us so much more through Jesus Christ. See, this is the direct correlation that Paul is making here between justification and our hope in God. If in our hearts we understand God's love for us through justification, then Paul says the application in our lives is that we will rejoice and we will have hope in God a hope that will never waver, a hope that will never fail in any circumstance. If we understand truly the love of God for us, then the love of God will carry over into application into our lives where we will not doubt God or you know, condemn God or complain against God, but that love of God, we understand it, and then it, it correlates, it, it directly translates into how we live our lives. What does Paul say? He gives us an example of suffering. He doesn't go into detail, but he says, when you suffer, in verse 5, hope will not fail you in these sufferings because the hope that we have been given is hinged upon. It, It correlates, it comes from the love of God for us 
through this justification, the love of God that he has shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ, it is poured out unto us, he says. Instead of wrath being poured out unto us, he says the love of God is poured out unto us. So instead of weeping or complaining or having doubts, in suffering, in trial, in whatever, whatever you want to put in there, he says that the love of God will surpass all of these things. And it will cause us even to rejoice in our sufferings. Because in our suffering, when we endure it, understanding God's love, right? Not just enduring suffering. Oh, look at me, God, I'm suffering so much. No, no, no. Paul is saying when you understand justification, when you understand the peace of God, when you understand the love of God and you go through suffering, it will, under, it will produce endurance, it will produce your character, it will produce hope. Now Paul is jubilant. He's excited. I, I don't know if you can read that in the passage, but I can read that. Paul just writing this because for four chapters, he's kind of been defending, you know, oh, you know, there's no Jew and Gentile and this is what God's love is for us. And he's, you know, it comes from Abraham. And, you know, did, did, was Abraham circumcised, you know, when he was called, you know, righteous? You know, all these things. He's defending himself. And in chapter five, he's saying, therefore. And you know, when there's a therefore, you got to ask what it's there for. He's, he's, he's continuing this argument, but he's shifting his tone. And he's saying, now that you understand this covenant of love for us, he says, rejoice. Who cares if you're suffering? Rejoice. Because it means that we have purpose and hope and reason to be joyful and excited in our lives because we have been loved by God. We have a future hope of, in the glory of God, but Paul says also that this future hope and this future glory allows us to live our present lives with joy because even now we have the same purpose, hope, and joy because we have been justified and reconciled to God. So, perhaps we know and we understand this love of God. We know it in our minds. You know, oh, yeah, Pastor Joshua, you know, that's nothing new. But how can I be sure? How can I be absolutely sure that this love of God is true to me? In verse 2, Paul says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This justification, our salvation, this reconciliation is all based on our faith that is in Jesus Christ. And as Tyler mentioned earlier, this faith that is given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the basis of our justification and our salvation. Again, it is not from us initiating something to God. It is the gift given to us that is the basis, it's the foundation of our faith, our justification, and our salvation. So, it is through faith that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God and that he died for our sins and he resurrected on that third day. It is through faith in Jesus' work of salvation that we are adopted into his family and called his own children, the children of light. And it is through faith that though we are still broken now in our earthly flesh, that one day we will be glorified with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. It is only by faith and through the regeneration of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, only through salvation work of Jesus Christ and through the grace of God. This is how we can have assurance of our salvation, assurance, absolute assurance that God loves us. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of how we act, but it is because of the grace and the love that has been given to us. Last week, Kenny, he shared with us the promise of God that rests on grace. And he talked about the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And he explained that he gave this covenant to Abraham. And we read that in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And in today's Old Testament passage in Genesis 18, we read the fulfillment of that covenant. When God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, I will give you a son. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. Everybody say, she laughs. She laughs. I won't make you laugh. No. <laughs> I guess I did make you laugh. She laughs. Why? Because it's impossible. See, the, the analogy here is what was in Sarah was absolutely dead. Okay, not only was she, I'm sorry, Sarah, right, wherever you are. Not only was she old, but she was barren. She could not produce children. What was inside her was dead. But God came and the Lord said, I will give you a child. And he did it. And although Abraham tried to take things into his own hands beforehand, although he messed things up, you know, in, in human perspective, not only did Sarah doubt and laugh, that they couldn't have these children or, or a child. And although she was dead inside, yet God came and gave her a child. It was God's plan to fulfill his promise, his covenant with his people. And that covenant wasn't only in Abraham's time, but the covenant extends all the way to us today. And so Paul in chapter four, he says, all of you who have faith in Jesus Christ are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. In 4, 19 to 25, he says, speaking of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convicted that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now the question that I always had growing up was what do I need to do in order to gain God's favor and get into heaven. 
probably until my third or fourth year of college. And I went to a Christian college, and I majored in theology. The question I had was, as a Christian, what do I need to do to gain God's favor and get into heaven? Because growing up, I didn't have this uh, you know, full reformed theology and doctrine and all these great Sunday school classes. I grew up as an Arminian, a Pentecostal, um, all, that, all sorts of things, right? I was never taught really the doctrine of grace through justification. I wasn't taught that Jesus loved me enough that I didn't have to do anything. I was taught to pray a prayer and I was taught to live a good life. And if I did those things, then I would get to heaven. And it wasn't until I got to university and I started being taught all of this weird doctrine like Calvinism and Tulip and all these things. It's like, what is this? And I would argue with my professors because, you know, I thought I was right. And I remember one day, I forget if it was my professor or one of the pastors at my church, they said, what did you have to do to get saved? And I said, oh, I didn't have to do anything, really. You know, just I was saved. And he said, if you didn't have to do anything before you got saved, what makes you think you have to do anything after you got saved? And that really hit me. And I thought, mm, I got to find something. I got to find an argument for this. You know, I got to find a way to, to prove this guy wrong. But I couldn't. Because he was absolutely right. And the Holy Spirit convicted me that day that there was nothing I could do to earn my way into heaven. Now, this was a problem for me because throughout my Christian life, I had many doubts about God's love for me. I had many, many issues. I had many questions about God's love for me. Even though I was saved when I was in high school, all through college, I thought, does God really love me? Whenever I was in sin, whenever I did something wrong, whenever I said something wrong, does God really love me still? God must really not love me. I remember leading a youth Bible study when I was in college. And there was this kid and, the, he, you know, this, this, this youth was just doing all sorts of bad things. And I remember telling this, this person, I said, if you keep doing all these things, do you think the Holy Spirit will keep wanting to live in you? That's, that's what I said when I was in college because that's what I believed. If I do something really bad, if I live a wayward life the way that God doesn't want me to live, what will, what will he do? He will take his Holy Spirit from me and I will no longer be saved. And this caused a lot of issues for me during my young life. Why? Because it caused me to doubt God's love for me. If I don't act properly, if I don't do things the right way, man, he's not going to love me anymore. And there were times where I convinced myself that God didn't love me anymore. There were times when I doubted my salvation. And needless to say, this was really detrimental to my growth as a Christian. See, when we doubt God's love for us, when we doubt whether we're saved or not, what we're doing is we are doubting 
God's faithfulness to us. We are doubting his trust. We're doubting that he's a keeper of his promise. We're saying, God, you're not trustworthy. I I doubt that you will keep your covenant promise with me. We are doubting God in, in a way that we're saying, you're not faithful. We are centering the salvation not on God, but on ourselves. We're saying there will be a point where God can change his mind. But throughout scripture, we read that he never changes his mind. He is always faithful. He always keeps his covenant promise. So, if we are not rooting our assurance in our Selves, and we are rooting our assurance in God upon His grace, upon His promise, upon His justifying us through Jesus Christ, then we can be fully sure that we are saved. And we can be fully sure of His love for us. In his commentary, Douglas Moo, he writes, sufferings rather than threatening or weakening our hope as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. Hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope and the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and the certainty of that for which we hope. You see, When, like me, if like me, you have no assurance of God's love, then during trial, during, you know, your suffering, whatever it is, you will fall away from God. But if you have an assurance of God's love for you and his justification for you, then during times of suffering and trial, when you're in sin, instead of running away from God, you will understand that you need to run to God. Because our hope is rooted in the unshakable love of God. So then, brothers and sisters, if God so loves us, and he will always love us, and whenever trials come our way, whenever our suffering comes our way, we must lean on that steadfast, unwavering love of God to catch us every time. And we need not ever question or doubt God's love for us. Sometimes we may be like Sarah or we we may be like Abraham. But when Sarah doubted, when she laughed, what did the Lord say to Sarah? He said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And I speak that upon myself and I hope that you can speak that upon yourself. Whenever you're in sin or you do something wrong, Or you feel like maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Speak these words. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? No. It is not too hard for the Lord to love me even though I sinned against him. Because of his grace and his love. And so we read later on in Romans chapter 8. The words of Paul. And I'll close with these words. That the love of God is so strong, it is so mighty for us. 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, powers nor height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this steadfast, this great love that you have given to us. We know, Lord, that it cost you your own son, Jesus. It cost you everything. Yet, because of your son, Jesus Christ, and because of the faith that you have given to us in your son, Jesus, Lord, you have poured unto us your love through grace. And so, Lord, let us live by this love. Let us live in this faith every single day. Lord, you know. You know that we are not perfect yet. You know that we continue to struggle with sin. You know, Lord, our suffering. And so in the midst of it all, as Paul reminds us this morning, because of how you love us, let us rejoice even in our suffering. Let us rejoice even in all of this, that you may be glorified and be honored. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.